You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. I am haunted by consciousness. The great mystery of inner awareness, seemingly so commonplace, truly so astounding. When science finally finishes the puzzle of the universe, the puzzle of consciousness, many believe, will remain largely unfinished. I search for consciousness. Where to find it? Humans, obviously. Animals, which animals? Chimps, elephants, dolphins, dogs, termites, snails, amoeba, bacteria. What about non-biological intelligences? Super supercomputers of the future. What things are conscious. I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. Since consciousness is my target, I should start with science and biological naturalism. So I begin in Berkeley with John Searle, a renowned philosopher of mind. John, let's assume we know what consciousness is and that I agree with your definition of that consciousness is biologically natural. I, I, I want to ask then, what kind of things are conscious? Well, the principle on which you would decide this is, does the mechanism in question have the relevantly uh, equal causal powers to the brain to cause consciousness. And we're pretty confident about the primates and indeed mammals. Uh, I don't really have any doubt that my dog is conscious. It's often said that that's because he behaves as if he were conscious. I don't think that's the reason. I might make a mechanical dog that behaved as if it were conscious where I'd know that it wasn't conscious. The reason I'm confident that uh, Gilbert, my dog, is conscious is because I know he has the relevant consciousness-producing mechanisms. And I don't, no fancy dog neurophysiology is involved in this. I just, I can see those are his eyes and those are his ears and this is his skin. Look what happens when you pinch his skin. At, at a first glance, we go on behavior. That's our first clue. But what we really want to know is what is the underlying mechanism? And we don't know enough about how the brain does it to know how far down the phylogenetic scale that goes. And are we dealing with a gradient or are we dealing with a step function that at some point it cuts off? What I think is, and I'm, I think this is kind of obvious, uh, there is a, a rheostatic feature to consciousness. It can be more or less intense, like a light can be brighter. And we know this from our own experience, the difference between fully alert and awake and just drifting off to sleep. But also, the rheostat has an on-off switch. Uh, the, uh, the, there comes a point when you're totally unconscious. So the chairs and the tables, they're totally unconscious. They don't have any, they're not candidates. Mm -hmm. But of the, of the mechanisms that are candidates, there, is a, there are different degrees of consciousness. 
So let's just try to get a little bit finer. We're saying mammals yeah. are conscious to some degree, yeah. no matter what. How far? You know? We don't know. Now the question is, how would we decide? Well, I'll give you a test. Suppose that we had a perfect science of a, a, a brain, mm -hmm. so we knew exactly how the brain produces consciousness. And suppose we found that consciousness-producing mechanism in all the higher animals, then we're pretty confident. Uh, that that is sufficient for consciousness. Now, if we then did an investigation of really uh, small animals, termites or snails, mm -hmm. and we discovered that the consciousness-producing mechanism, call it XYZ, that the XYZ uh, neurobiology exists in snails but not in termites, then we might say that's pretty conclusive evidence that the snail is conscious and the termites not conscious. For but, but it's an empirical test. It's an empirical test. So I think and that would we regard that in real life as conclusive. All right, let, let, let's, uh, let's move from animals. Uh, certainly then plants yeah. would not have the Not machinery. candidates, no. Okay. Uh, computers are candidates yeah. today. If you embed the actual consciousness-producing mechanisms, that is, if you knew what caused consciousness in human beings and you knew that something was causally sufficient to cause consciousness in another system, then you'd know you'd produce consciousness. Now notice, you don't have to have neurons in order to have consciousness. I mean, it's like saying you don't have to have feathers in order to fly. But if you build a flying machine, you don't have to have feathers, but you do have to have enough causal power that you share with birds to overcome the force of gravity in the Earth's atmosphere. Now, analogously, if you build a consciousness machine, maybe you don't have to have neurons, we just don't know. I mean, maybe neurons are like feathers. Uh, they help us be conscious, but they're not necessary for the production of the entity itself, for the processes itself. But then, if that's the case, you would have to know that the system did have an equivalent causal power to produce consciousness. But I see no obstacle in principle to producing a, a conscious machine because we are conscious machines. We're all conscious machines. To John, brains have a consciousness-producing mechanism, which is sufficient, but perhaps not necessary, to create consciousness. Sufficient means that wherever the mechanism occurs, biological brains, it will produce consciousness. Not necessary means there could be other ways, in addition to biological brains, for consciousness to come about. Futurist Ray Kurzweil envisions other ways. Non-biological intelligences, he says, will far surpass human intelligence. But will non-biological intelligences be conscious, Ray? That's the question. Ray, if you just ask the simple question, what things are conscious, you get a whole bunch of different views. What's yours? Well, first of all, fundamentally, it's not a scientific question. We can talk scientifically about the neurological correlates of consciousness, but fundamentally, consciousness is this subjective experience that only I can experience. I mean, I, I should only talk about it in, in first-person terms. Now, I've been sufficiently socialized to accept other people's consciousness if they appear conscious, which they don't always. But my own consciousness is really only aware of, of itself, and it's... Uh, there's no really way to measure the conscious uh, experiences of another entity. But if I go beyond that, I'd have to say it's an emergent property. We're not going to find a center of consciousness, I don't believe. 
the consciousness is in this particular module of the brain. I think an, an entity that is sufficiently complex and rich to embody the kind of phenomena that occur in the human brain does emerge. Certainly, an emergent property is apparent consciousness. It, it will act in a way that's conscious. It will talk about its own consciousness and its own feelings, and will argue about it just the way you and I do. So you're bifurcating, in a sense, the, the consciousness into an apparent consciousness, which something acts as if it's conscious, and subjective consciousness, which is the internal feeling that I'm self-aware, which only I can have. And then we have to make a philosophical judgment, and which, which really stands outside of science, but I think is an important judgment to make. And I do make the judgment that apparently conscious entities are conscious. Animals, some of them, uh, higher-order animals, certainly appear to be conscious. They may, you can say that's human-centric because we say they're conscious when they're exhibiting human-like emotions, like protecting their young or fear, uh, so we can empathize with them. But I do make the jump that if something is, uh, appears to be conscious, I'll accept that it, it, that it is conscious. And because we're hardwired to do that, we have this empathetic reactions. And when you get into non-biological uh, systems and complex enough, they're going to be indistinguishable from consciousness, leaving aside the question about is there an internal experience. And I would accept that they're conscious. That'll be convenient anyway because they'll get mad at me if I don't. <laughs> but we're still back at that bifurcation between what is apparent consciousness versus the internal first-person subjective feeling of I know what it means to be aware and self-aware. If you limit yourself to science, which is objective observation, then there is a difference because I observe some other entity and I could observe that it's doing intelligent tasks, but is it feeling something? I can't really experience that. I experience my own feelings. I don't so it's a philosophical issue. So if you ask me philosophically, you know, what is my philosophy? I say, yeah, I think other human beings are conscious and do have feelings. Uh, but by extension there, if a machine exhibits human level intelligence and therefore passes a Turing test, I will accept that it has feelings as well. I don't think substrate really affects consciousness. We have information processes running in our brain. They happen to run on this biochemical substrate of, of neurons, you could run the same processes once we understand them on some other substrate, like a massively parallel computer. We will do that, I believe. And it doesn't matter that it's not running on a meat machine. It's running on uh, electronics or nanotubes. But if it's a similar kinds of processes, uh, if you believe that the human being is conscious, which I do, uh, we'll have to accept that for the non-biological systems as well. Ray is ready for machines to be conscious. Although the judgment is philosophical, he admits, not scientific. Am I ready for machine consciousness? Apparent consciousness, sure, passing every test. But real inner experience? I think not. But why not? Am I guilty of carbon bias? or deluded by desire for something beyond body and brain. To test the other side, I jumped to the opposite worldview. How might a Christian philosopher assess what things are conscious? 
I visit Biola University in Los Angeles to ask J.P. Moreland, author of Consciousness and the Existence of God. J.P. believes in souls and spirits. How do you view the soul or consciousness in this, this great uh, chain of, of life? Well, something either does or doesn't have a soul, but our degree of certainty as to whether something has a soul lessens to the degree that the thing is less analogous to us. Let, let me explain. This is a part of the problem of the knowledge of other minds. If I'm stuck with a pin, before I grimace and shout ouch, I'm aware in my own case of feeling pain. Now, I notice that you're very analogous and similar to me, so I assume that when you're stuck with a pin, while I can't observe your feeling of pain, before you grimace and shout ouch, I ascribe to you a state called a pain state that is similar to the one I have. And because you and I are very, very analogous to one another in our inputs and outputs and behaviors, I'm justified in ascribing sure. to you a mind sure. very much like mine. To the degree that a living organism's behaviors in light of their inputs is different from ours, to that degree we are justified in ascribing a different soul to that organism. Are, are frogs conscious? Sure, they're conscious. There's good evidence that they feel pain and are able to see flies. There's no evidence that they're capable of forming concepts and thinking thoughts, however. Dogs are different. So, from frogs to uh, great apes, they all have souls, but the souls have different faculties uh, That's right. among these they would all have. They would all have an immaterial substance that contains consciousness and animates its body and makes it living. But the degree of complexity, the number of faculties in that living organism would, would vary depending on the organism itself. How far down the scale do you go? Do you go to the very definition of life? Does every expression of life have a soul? If, if you have a machine, the parts are prior to the whole and the parts work together independent of the whole. You take the parts out of the whole, you take a radio out of a car or a steering wheel, it's still a steering wheel. If you have parts of a living organism, however, that are what they are in virtue of its relationship to all the other parts, then what you have are parts that are functioning in light of the whole. Yes. The whole is prior to the parts, whereas with inanimate objects, right, the right, parts right. are prior to the right. whole. Whenever we have evidence that the whole is prior to the parts. You have a soul. You right. So if a one cell uh, uh, bacterium or an amoeba reacts with its environment, we know it's alive, that it has some kind of soul, maybe very, very, very simple compared to our soul. That's right. It's not conscious, but you can't explain the interaction of its parts mechanistically. Uh, you have to have a whole that is prior to the parts if you have evidence that the parts function and are what they are in light of that whole. So the, the very um, simplest of forms of life, you would say have a soul but do not have consciousness. That's right. Because consciousness may be the mind and that's one of the faculties that is not existent at that level. Exactly right. You mean I understand this now? Well, uh, he was, he's, I hope so. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand it. JP differentiates between a soul which he claims animates all life, and consciousness, which he says is one of the various faculties of the soul, which animals have in differing degrees of complexity. We all bring bias to our work. JP derives his views on consciousness from his belief in the Bible. Although not supported by neuroscience, 
there's a kind of internal consistency. What about those whose spirituality cuts a broader path? I go to the hills high above San Francisco, to the Institute of Noetic Sciences, to meet its president, Marilyn Schlitz. Marilyn was trained as an anthropologist and conducted research in parapsychology, giving her a rather wide lens view of what things are conscious. When I think about it, it is a, a whole. And I see consciousness as a process of reflection and correction and calibration and emergence, an emergence towards something. There's a telos that is about, you know, the manifestation of life. It's, it's the wholeness of the planet. It's the wholeness of, you know, the particular flora and fauna of the rainforest. It's the wholeness of every living creature that acts in a mindful way in, in a kind of environmental niche that works collaboratively. Consciousness is the whole. It is that frame of organization. And so you can then take the bits. You can say, um, a colony of ants have a capacity to be conscious, and they work together toward a particular outcome. Uh, you know, when you watch ants' behavior, they're very intentional. They direct their activities toward a particular object or outcome. Yeah, and when you think about the tremendous diversity of life forms on the planet and how there is this synergistic relationship between the parts, I can see the consciousness of those parts. But for me, it makes more sense, really, to think about the consciousness of the whole. How is it that each of these parts intersects and you know, entangles itself with the other? How is that then similar or dissimilar as you go down the, the phylogenetic scale? I think part of the narcissism of the Western worldview is the assumption that we're kind of on the top of some hierarchy. Yeah, I feel that way. Therefore, and you are a re representative of that. Me, on the other hand, I have a little more humble view of myself. And, and, uh, and so when I think about it, I'm aware that... Your humbleness is your arrogance. Well then, okay. How can we be aware that part of the worldview that we have created is one in which we are at the top and we are separate from? So when you start thinking about something like cows, and if you were to accept the idea that, that cows have consciousness, wouldn't that alter your behavior toward cows? You start to see that they're very social and playful and engaging, and they love to frolic with one another. And I really think if they were smaller, they'd probably be household pets. But because our worldview sees humans as the conscious ones, we have created a way in which we can then send the cows to slaughterhouses and eat them without any reflection on the sort of atrocity that we're committing to their consciousness. How far down do you go? I mean, you, you talked about ants, uh, single-cell uh, amoeba that, that react to stimuli. I think so. I mean, I would consider that there are different levels of consciousness, different complexities of consciousness. Okay. Any living form I would consider having some aspect of consciousness. Every single living thing conscious? Consciousness is the whole? Many share Marilyn's way of thinking, melding ancient wisdom traditions, New Age mysticism, and modern science. Frankly, it's not my way of thinking. But whatever expands the footprint of consciousness, I must give a second look. 
There's one view even more extreme. It's called panpsychism and means that everything has something of consciousness, inanimate as well as animate, rocks as well as rodents. Mind is everywhere. At Oxford, the university's Museum of Natural History, I meet Rupert Sheldrake, a biochemist turned parapsychologist. Though his unorthodox theories are criticized severely, Rupert remains unruffled, seeing, he says, a deeper reality. I think that the con conventional view that the whole of nature is totally unconscious, that somehow when brains reach a certain size, a kind of light bulb of consciousness goes on, I personally find that a fantastical point of view, very unconvincing. I think we have to ask what does consciousness do, and what consciousness does is enables different possibilities to be held together and chosen among. Now, I think to any system in nature which has possibilities, which are not fixed, um, would have some measure of consciousness. And what quantum physics tells us is that every system in nature uh, is not rigidly determinate. It has possibilities. Even a hydrogen atom, an electron, has a whole realm of possibility open to it of which only a small fraction is realized. Now, to what extent it's making real choices, to what extent there's consciousness in something as simple as an electron is arguable and probably undecidable. I think it gets much more interesting when we look at larger systems like the sun or the galaxy. If consciousness emerges from patterns of electrical activity in your brain and mine, as most materialists would assume, uh, the sun has vastly more complex patterns of electrical activity than our brains. So why shouldn't that be associated with consciousness? Why shouldn't the sun have a mind? And if the sun has a mind, why not the, all the stars? Uh, if all the stars have minds, what about a huge collection of stars like the galaxy linked up by vast plasma uh, currents of electricity surging through the arms of galaxies linking together all the parts of it? So, so you're building a, a, a hierarchy of different kinds of consciousness, each one truly conscious, not, not metaphor, but real? Real, but with its own kind of consciousness. Um, I mean, human consciousness is different from dog consciousness. and. You know, Chinese consciousness is different from American consciousness. And sun consciousness is different than earth consciousness. Oh, totally different, yes. Maybe the entire universe has a mind, why not? There may be many, many levels of consciousness, and even atoms and molecules may have limited forms. So you like have a nesting of consciousness. A nesting of consciousness. And nature's nested in its organization. I mean, I think all things that have consciousness are in the same state. They have a physical reality, like a brain, a body, the sun, its electrical fields, and its whole, its whole nature, its whole physical body, with its rhythmic patterns. So it's not like a mysterious entity that somehow comes in and is sort of dualistically welded on for a while to a body. And then it, it's a realm of possibility that, like a cloud of possibility in the future, that surrounds every physical thing. Does that make you a panpsychic, where you see consciousness at some level or other in everything? Yes, I think there's some kind of mind, or not necessarily conscious, I think it's more likely to be unconscious, a kind of mind-like aspect to almost everything. Consciousness is about choice, it's about choosing among possibilities, it's about holding together possibilities, and it's the medium through which creativity 
uh, can come into being. Now, the whole of the universe is evolutionary. The whole of the universe is creative in that sense, that new things are happening. Where does that come from? And I think that there's a, a kind of consciousness at all levels in the universe, or some kind of mind. And I, think part of I can't help recalling how John Searle, like most philosophers, rejects panpsychism, refuting the idea that proto-consciousness resides in every particle. I mean, I've heard that hypothesis before. I think it's hot air, uh, because you got to know what's meant by proto-consciousness. So what things are conscious? Here are some categories, from ultra-exclusive human-centric to ultra-inclusive panpsychic. One, only human beings are truly conscious, a position often driven by religious belief in a soul. Two, only animals with large brains, primates, elephants, dolphins. Three, computational systems of sufficient complexity, including non-biological systems. Four, all animals with differing degrees of consciousness. Five, all life of any kind, plant or animal, single cell or multi-cell. Six, all that exists, non-living as well as living, every particle with proto-consciousness. Key questions. Is biology required for inner experience? Is human consciousness anything special? If the mystery of consciousness is ever to be solved, what things are conscious will be a clue. And consciousness is a shortcut getting closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.